Okay. Hello, everyone. Here we are. Um, let's get into it. So the the things we're going to do today are uh, take a look at King Lear. Um, try and maybe get through some some more of the the acts uh, with a focus on Edmund and Edgar. And I also want to take a look at the, the thing I just posted for the assignment, which was the uh, chapter six. It's actually from this book, um, Kristen Linklater's book on Shakespeare's voice. And it has a few examples of actually scanned text. So those are some different things I'm going to look at. So I'll start with questions about, let's start with the, the assignment due Monday. So are there any questions about that? You, you just email it to me. Okay, well, that's a good start. So I had posted this last night. I, I, I don't, it wasn't required that you read it. I, I really don't expect that anybody had. It's a resource to jump on when you need it. But I, I did want to go. Okay. I, I did want to go over it right now, um, just to you know, just while we have the time. It it's on iambic pentameter and it's on scansion. And I wanted to take a look at um, some idea she has that might help with the scansion part of the the assignment where you have to write kind of like why you made four decisions, you know, uh, write about 500 words. I know some people had trouble getting to 500 words, um, but what Linklater writes about in this is uh, why certain words are stressed and why certain words are not stressed. What she says is that the words that are stressed in Shakespeare tend to reveal the argument of the set speech or soliloquy that's being delivered. All right, so um, so let's get into that. And I wanted to look at page 127 of that book. And if you don't have it in front of you, that's fine. It is in the uh, acting project content folder. Um, but on, that, on page 127, she takes out a, a Shakespearean sonnet, and this is how it goes. So I'll read the first part of it. Since brass nor stone nor earth nor boundless sea, but sad mortality or sways their power, how with this rage shall beauty hold a plea whose action is no stronger than a flower? All right. So when you look at that, the... The, the scansion here is pretty iambic. It, it looks standard. Um, and what we see here is that the, the first line, since brass, no stone, no earth, no boundless sea, features these particular words stressed. Brass, stone, earth, bound, sea. Right? Very concrete things. I mean, bound is, isn't. But uh, brass, stone, earth, sea are physical things in the world that you can identify and point to. Um, but the line after that, sad, 
pow, or from mortality, sways power, more abstract things. So you have this kind of natural stress next to more abstract words being stressed. Um, then we get with rage, bew from beauty, hold plea. All right, um, a little mixture here. These seems to be actions, though. Rage is, you know, description. Um, beauty, also description. Hold is an action. Plea is an action. And then action is strong, and it ends on flower. Um, and so what we have in this, this sonnet, or the first four lines of the sonnet, is these kind of concrete words followed by or paired with these abstract words, which leads into this kind of rage, beauty, plea. Rage and beauty are next to each other, pleading. And then we have action, strength, and flower right after that. Right. So considering all these things, what might you want to write about in terms of um, why you chose to stress those particular words, presuming you're stressing th the same words that I am, right? I'm, I'm, I'm imagining myself doing this exercise. Um, and so what I would say is I am electing to use the traditional I am's in order to stress concrete things connected to and juxtaposed with abstract things. I want to show how the concrete dissolves into the abstract. Then I want to connect um, in the next line, rage and beauty as pleading. Rage and beauty, two opposites, two sides of something as both pleading. And so the argument goes from the, the concrete world dissolving into abstractions. And in that dissolution, we see rage and beauty pleading for something, asking for something. And then in the line after that, that kind of division, right? The division between, the, you know, the, the concrete and the abstract takes on the form of a division or a paradox of action, of strength next to the flower, next to this kind of, um, you know, small, beautiful thing. Um, and, you know, what, what ends up, what this poem ends up being about um, is that uh, that we have kind of like beauty is spoiling, it's going away, it's dissolving. So this concrete thing, beauty, like the the, the woman, how she looks. He's, it's a sonnet to a sonnet to a lover, um, and you know it's it's how she looks, how her appearance is, um, and how time is. Uh, Time is, is kind of taking it away, destroying the beauty. And the only thing to do is take action and write about how beautiful she is. Right. So to, you know, to to take her beauty, to take her physical form and kind of trap it into this poem. Um, and so we could see here how Shakespeare's doing that or how I would argue Shakespeare's doing that using the text is that he's stressing um, uh, uh, concrete words next to abstract words. The concrete is dissolving. Time is taking away or blowing up beauty. It's, it's getting rid of it. All right. So th that would be an example of kind of how to 
use and talk about the text. Now, you don't, I, I got pretty heady there. You don't have to get that heady with what you're writing, but you should feel free to. You should feel free to look at the, those stresses in that very kind of particular way and be that creative. Um, you know, now, now part of my creativity is the fact that I'm, I'm looking at this in this book and there's, you know, Linklater is doing some of the work for me, you know, this, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, my, my point is that that would be a kind of a way of approaching, um, approaching that reading. And then from there, you could kind of take a look at, you know, line and gem and, and whatnot. And it seems like each line in this poem is end stopped, um, with the exception of boundless sea, hold out against. Uh, so there's two places which aren't end stopped, which is the, the first line and then the fifth line. So the first line sets up the, you know, the first four lines are a set or an argument. And then the lines five through 10, uh, excuse me, lines five through eight, set up a second argument or set up a second statement. Um, and you could kind of talk about how the uh, wraparound, the enjambment of the lines does that. Um, you know, it's boundless sea, but sad mortality or sways their power. That's the enchantment there. It goes from boundless sea to line two, but sad mortality or sways their power. And I might say the enchantment is occurring there because what he's literally saying is the sea is boundless. It can't be contained. So too, the line can't be contained. There's no punctuation. It just wraps around into, into line two. Since brass, nor stone, nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality or sways their power. The line itself, it, it's boundless. It runs on into the next line. And so that would be maybe point two or point three, depending, depending on how you're doing this, as to what I want to write about when discussing how scanning the text gives meaning. All right, so that was a lot. That was 10 minutes of me uh, uh, talking. Um, any questions about that? Okay, just so honest response from you guys. Was that helpful or was that more confusing? Okay. Or instead of helpful or confusing, um, did, did you understand what I was saying? Okay, good. So uh, this is, yeah, I, I imagine saying what you said make no sense is probably intimidating to a teacher in a classroom in front of people or virtually in front of people. So email me if if that was in any way confusing or you're still concerned about the um, about writing about how to use scansion to to find meaning in the text. Um, I've gotten I think more than one email about this. So I I imagine you know if I'm getting more than one email, there's probably more people who are not emailing me who are confused. Um, and if we could meet in person, it would be a lot easier, but such is life. All right. So anything else do we want to talk about with Linklater? Please take a look at that. It's a, it's a great resource for, um, for this project. Okay. So, uh, if there is something somebody wants to say, just interrupt me. We could always go back. Um, and let's get into 
Act 1, Scene 2. And we have here Edmund. And Edmund starts us off with a, a very famous speech, maybe his most famous. Um, and so before we get into that speech and that meaning, let's summarize Edmund's story. And we'll do the Edmund Edgar Gloucester story. So what is the Edmund Edgar Gloucester story? Just give me the give me the plot summary through the rest of the play. So also I have a little bit of a cough, so I'm going to try and not cough into the microphone, um, but, you know, it's going to happen. Okay, well, we're, we're not incredibly responsive about plot summary, uh, so I'll, I'll start it off. So um, Edmund and Edgar, how, how do they relate to one another? Oh, that's okay. Uh, they're Good. So they're half brothers, and um, is Edmund super happy about this? No. No. <laughs> yeah, to, to say the least. Right. So what does he do to uh, to to correct what he sees as an injustice? Yeah, Edgar. Edgar is the, the legitimate son. I don't, for me, it always sounds the opposite. Like, I feel like Ed, Edgar should be the bastard, but whatever. Ed, Edgar's the legitimate son. And so, yeah, Edmund wants the inheritance and he wants the legitimacy. Um, and so he stages, uh, he, he stages Edgar's betrayal, right? He writes a letter that says, you know, he's going to betray the father because um, he wants the inheritance early. And then um, he gets Ed, he gets Edgar to engage him in a sword fight in order to look like he's defending his father. However, to Gloucester, this looks like Edgar was attacking Edmund in order to get at the father. So Edmund sets up a series of events that gets Edgar cast out. Right. And what happens to Edgar? What does he do once he becomes um, once he becomes a criminal or known as a criminal? Nope, that's right. He goes into, he goes into like the woods, right? the The way they describe it, it sounds almost like a like a plane or something like that. But it's um, you know, it's like a it, it. The way they describe it, there's like no trees or covering anywhere. 
So it's like the prairie. It's supposed to be England, but on the prairie. It's a very weird space, but... Um, okay, maybe, yeah. Maybe it's the Moors, sure. Uh, but yeah, that's where he goes, and he's kind of exposed to the elements. And he takes on the personality of whom? Right, he takes up a new name, even. And what is that? What is that person? <laughs> yep, yeah, it's exactly. It's Tom Bedlam. Um, and Tom Bedlam, Tom Bedlam was a poem from the mid 16th century. I, I don't expect you to know this part, um, but Tom Bedlam was a poem from the 16th century about a wandering homeless person who pretends to be crazy. Right. And so, you know, the, the audience would have known that. Right. So him picking up the the name of, of Tom Bedlam is him sort of adapting that personality. Uh, good. And so he then runs into Lear and Kent and he becomes kind of part of that that tribe. Great. So what happens then to Gloucester, the father of Edmund and Edgar? He, he eventually goes blind. So, um, uh, what happens is we, we already talked about this. Um, Cordelia goes off to marry France. Now France is come back to take the kingdom and, and give it to give it back to Lear, right? Cause of Goneril and Regan, they've, you know, They've done that. <laughs> they, they've um, they, they've taken the kingdom. France and Cordelia think it's unjust, so they're coming back to invade. And Gloucester is on their side. Uh, however, Edmund um, gives advice to Albany, which results in the capture of Gloucester. So Edmund betrays his father. And what does um, what does Albany do to Gloucester? He puts out his his eyes. He cuts them out of his head. Right? Out, out, sweet jelly. And then he rips them out and then leaves him um, in in the moors, I guess. We'll call them the moors, Rachel. I, I like that. And he leaves Gloucester in the moors to, to kind of fend for himself. And who comes along but poor old Tom to take care and what is Gloucester's plan now that he's been blinded and, and left left to die? He does, because he's blind. Um, but Gloucester wants to do something when, when he's first put out uh, and his eyes are put out. Um, he wants to go to the hills of Dover, which are these, these hills at the south end of England looking on the, the channel. Um, and what does he want to do when he gets to those hills? So he wants to, to jump off. He wants to commit suicide. He wants to go to the hills of Dover and commit suicide. And uh, Edgar agrees to take him. Right? 
So this is uh, this is four one. Here's Gloucester and Edgar in four one. This is line fifty five. Knows that the way to Dover, Edgar. Both style and gait, horseway and footpath. Poor Tom hath been scared out of his good wits. Bless thee, good man's son, from the foul fiend. Five fiends have been in poor Tom at once of lust, as Abdicat, Hobbidance, Prince of Dumbness, Mahu of Stealing, Modu of Murder, blah, blah, blah. Um, so bless thee, master. Here, take this purse, thou whom the heavens plagues, have humbled to all strokes, that I am wretched, make thee the happier. Heavens deal so still that the superfluous and lust-dieted man that slaves your ordinance that will not see because he does not feel, feel your power quickly. So distribution should undo excess, and each man have enough. Dost thou know Dover? I, master. There is a cliff whose high and bending head looks fearfully on the confined deep Bring me but to the very brim of it, and I'll repair the misery thou dost bear with something rich about me. From this place I shall no leading need. Um, you know, and then I'll, I'll lead you there. Uh, and Edgar eventually says to the audience, um, I'm going to let him, like, I'm, I'm going to let him perform the suicide so that it can heal him from his melancholy. And so Edgar kind of... Uh, he tells Gloucester, up, oh, you're at the edge of the cliff, even though there's no cliff there. And he tells him to jump. And then he says, oh, it was rem remarkable that you, you didn't fall and were killed. And so that ends up being what happens to Gloucester. Uh, and in the end of the play, Gloucester dies um, from a broken heart. He's kind of, he, he's so overwhelmed that eventually we learn at the end of the play, while Lear, Lear is holding Cordelia, that Gloucester has died. Um, but let's get into, let's get into Edmund, who is maybe the more fun character. Um, and let's look at his speech in act one, scene two. So he starts off. So it starts off this way. Thou nature art my goddess to thy law. My services are bound. So in those first two lines, he's devoting himself to nature. And we have to say, he's devoting himself to nature, why or against what? Why is he doing this? Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me, for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother? Why bastard? Wherefore base, when my dimensions are as well compact my mind as generous and my shape as true as honest madam's issue. Why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardly, base, base? All right, so let's take a look at that. Um, so he's going to commit himself to nature. And he said he's going to do this instead of standing in what he calls the plague of custom. So what does that mean? What is the plague of custom? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he mentions two things, right? It's that he's a bastard and they're saying bastards are bad. And also he's the second brother, right? He was born. Um, 
12 or 14 moonshines. So a moonshine is a month. Uh, you know, he's so he's younger by 12 or 14 months. Um, and so in both cases, being younger, he doesn't in, in, inherit certain titles. Being a bastard, he doesn't inherit any money um, or legitimacy or standing in the world. And so all these customs and traditions, they don't benefit him. So they're out. He's not going to he's he's not abiding to them instead he's going to get take this machiavellian route and do what kind of benefits him and his argument for that is is as following um well actually i'll ask you guys what is his argument for why he should uh ignore custom when um you know why he should ignore custom and then instead follow nature what does nature let him know? What is nature telling him? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, in case, in case you guys didn't, you didn't hear what Kimberly said, it was, um, what I got was that, uh, nature made him just as good, right? He's just, he's just as good. Uh, you know, he's just as talented and all that stuff. He says, you know, my mind, this is line seven, I think, uh, line eight, sorry. My mind as generous. So I, I don't think by that he means like he donates to the Salvation Army or something. It, it's his mind produces as much. He's as smart as anyone, right? He's, he's just as smart. His mind is just as good. My shape as true. Again, I, you know, it's not virtuous. My shape as true means he's just as fit. Like he's as physically good as anyone else. Um, as, on, as honest man's issue. As honest madam's issue, excuse me. Honest madam would be like the legitimate mother. Um, issue is the child of, of the mother. Right? So there is no reason for him to be branded base. Base just means low, low born, right? Ba like the foundation of something also. You're lower in virtue. You're lower in value, right? Custom says you are low in value. And his argument is, well, I'm not, I can think just as well as anyone, and I'm just as physically able as anyone. And honestly, the play sort of confirms that, right? I mean, he uses his brain to outwit people, for a time anyway. Um, you know, he outwits everyone's husband because he starts kind of a romantic relationship with both Goneril and Regan. Um, and he's also just as fit. I mean, he is a very capable leader and he's very capable in a one-on-one -on -one fight which we see so that is not only kind of the theme of um of edmund uh, and it's his perspective that you know if you can take charge take charge don't listen to custom don't listen to tr tradition you know exercise your faculties if you're talented use those talents uh, that doesn't seem like a bad message. However, what does that lead him to do? Mm -hmm. Okay. And did I, I don't know how many people saw the, the movie posted, which was a sign for today. Uh, but did it, did, well, I'll just, just be honest with me. Did, did anybody actually watch the movie? If you did, that would be, you know, just, just yell out. Um, so 
anyway, so the, the actor who plays him and how he does this speech is it's, you know, and, and kind of to Rachel's point, um, he doesn't more measured. He doesn't go, he doesn't say like, um, uh, what brand they base, space, this bastardly base, but, you know, he, 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 he has it, he plays it with like a lot of control and kind of goes over the words. Um, because I think that his argument here, and it's interesting because you see his argument next to Lear's decision, right? So Ed, Edmund's decisions come are, are argued out in front of us. That even though he is clearly angry, I don't think, you know, this is, this is not a cold, calculating Iago. You know, Edmund is, is upset about his position in the world. And there's some justification for him being upset. Yet he kind of lays out an argument that, I, I don't know, is, um, that is logical. So I would say that there's a balance going on here with Edmund between, you know, him, him being upset about these things. And you could, you know, see it, especially in that line that, that Rachel is referencing, um, you know, lines or, there's a few of them anyway, but uh, lines nine through ten. Why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardly base, base. Um, where he's just sort of repeating the word. That that seems to be like a little, a little emotional or very emotional. He's just hammering this word on. Um, but he also lays out the, this argument as to, you know, the customs and traditions of society are unfair. And they're not reasonable. They're just things we do. Why not have the talented person exercise his talents, right? Why, you know, confine an intelligent and capable leader, which Edmund reveals himself to be, right? He does work for um, Albany and Cornwall. He does lead troops against France at the end of the play. So why are we going to um, uh, not allow that leadership in our in our armies or in our world? Because, you know, you were born 14 months after that guy, you know, so, oh, well, <laughs> you don't get to do that. So I think there is a balance here between his, his anger and his, his logic. That's what I wanted to bring forth. But let's talk about what happens to him. So um, Edmund does court both sisters. Uh, it's a little ambiguous as to how much how how physical he is with with the sisters um but his courting of them inspires goneril to engage in what action what does she do how does this how does act five end for goneril and for reagan So, so well, let's talk, how, they die, right? Because it's a tragedy, so a bunch of people die. So how do Goneril and Regan die? 
Yep, exactly. Yeah, Goneril, uh, Goneril poisons her sister and then um, kills herself. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, and we see this is Act 5, Scene 3. Um, a, a, a character listed as gentleman comes in with a bloody knife. And he says, help, help, oh, help. Edgar says, what kind of help? Albany says, speak, man. Edgar, what means this bloody knife? Tis hot, it smokes. It came even from the heart of, oh, she's dead. Who's dead? Speak, man. Your lady, sir, your lady, and her sister. By her is poisoned. She confesses it. And then Edmund says, I was contracted to them both. All three now marry in an instant. So why do we believe that Goneril did what she did? What is her motivation? Uh, say that again, Kimberly. You're breaking up a little bit. Yes. Okay. Edmund for herself, if, if you guys didn't hear that. Um, exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's a fight over him. <laughs> it's it's They want to, uh, you know, they, they both want him. Um, and, you know, when it seems, you know, it seems like, um, it seems like Reagan may be getting the upper hand, she poisons her. Uh, and then it seems like out of guilt, she, she commits suicide. Um, and Edmund recognizes this. Uh, they're now married in an instant. Uh, all three of them, <laughs> you know, are, are married in an instant. Anyway, so let's let's keep going. So what ends up happening throughout this scene? Albany, Albany's there. Uh, Kent enters. Um, Albany tells the gentleman, bring the bodies in. Uh, and so we get on line 38, 238. Um, Goneril and Regan's bodies are brought out. Albany says, see this object, Kent. Kent, alack, why thus? Edmund. Yet Edmund was beloved. The one the other poisoned for my sake, and after slew herself. Albany. Even so, cover their faces. Edmund, I pant for life. Some good I mean to do, despite my own nature. Quickly, send be brief in it to the castle, for my writ is on the life of Lear and on Cordelia. Nay, send in time. So let's unpack that. The bodies are brought out, and Edmund has a very particular response. What is that response? He, he sure i'm sure yeah he feels guilty but his first thing what does he say he says yet edmund was beloved right this is line 240 in act 5 scene 3 okay yeah, so you're saying that this might be, this might be his objective through the play is to, um, to get love or to experience love. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's part of his part of his goal is that he he kind of achieves an entry into into this world. Um I think also part of it too is it's the first time anybody <laughs> the first time anybody has ever loved him, right? That, that this adult um you know with a with a father who he spent time with uh has never received any kind of evidence of any any love until this point. Yeah, this seems to be surprising to him. So it seems to complete his goal and it also seems to but so if it completes his goal it also has an unusual effect. And what is that effect? What does he do? Yeah, he admits to it, and he also says, some good I mean to do. So what is that good he means to do? Um, n- no, he, he, you know, he he's he's dying. He's gotten this fight. Right, so he, what, what has happened in terms of, um, in why he's injured is that he was accused of being a traitor by kind of romancing, um, romancing Albany's, Albany's wife. Albany's the good one. Cornwall's the bad one. I, I, I think I mixed that up before. Um, their names are like everybody's names are interchangeable in this. But uh, you know, Cornwall's the one who who cut out um, the eyes of Gloucester. Uh, Albany's kind of a good guy. But anyway, um, Albany accuses him of treason. He says that there's some evidence that he's mistreated Gloucester, and also that he is trying to sleep with. Or has slept with Albany's wife, which, you know, you don't sleep with the leader's wife. That's treason. And um, they do kind of like a a trial by combat, which I think even in Elizabeth's day was out of fashion. But this place speaks to an earlier time, which is your guilt or innocence was decided whether or not you won in a battle. Um, And so a herald calls out if anybody is willing to test excuse me, to test Edmund by combat, they can. And one person, one masked person comes forward, injures, mortally injures Edmund, and then reveals himself to be Edgar. You know, that, so that's, that's what happens at the end of this play. Um, and so Edmund, at this point, he's dying. And after he does what he does here, he's carried off. But what he does then is he says some good I mean to do uh, despite my own nature. So that's interesting because at the beginning he's courting nature. He's going to be nature's person, not custom. Custom, tradition, these are bad. He's going to em- embrace nature. Here, when he realizes he was loved, he goes, some good I mean to do despite my own nature, despite the fact that I've embraced nature. So there's a turning back towards custom, uh, albeit very briefly, which is he's going to save the life of Lear and Cordelia. When they were captured in, in battle, he had ordered that they be killed in their jail, right, in the jail cell. And so once he realizes that he was loved, this sort of inspires in him um, a, a return to custom. And he tries at the last minute to save them, which 
he manages to save Lear's life, although Lear dies very soon after. Um, but Cordelia has been killed based on Edmund's order. And so I just wanted to highlight this because this is a, a very interesting um, arc of development uh, that that he goes through. And I think it's this really kind of psychologically interesting moment, too, where someone, you know, someone achieves their goal, as you said, Kimberly, but at the same time, you know, there's this kind of un unintended consequence, which is he realizes he was loved. And once he can be loved, right, once he can recognize love, he then can kind of extend human feeling to other people. Um, and then there's also, once he realizes he can be loved, that binary between, you know, nature, talent, the, the Machiavellian world, which by Machiavellian, which was known in this time, Machiavelli was, was read and, and known. Um, he was sort of like the devil. That's what, that's how they saw him in England. He was like just the worst of the worst. But, um, the Machiavellian thing is kind of do what you can to stay in power, right? Which is, you know, the, the kind of the nature that Edmund takes up. And then an opposite of that is custom, tradition, law and order, the way things always have been. Um, and those things Edmund strikes up as a binary. He puts them opposite one another. And what's interesting is the whole play seems to be playing with that binary. Um, now, I, I think that I think it is wrong to say it's one or the other, right? To say Edmund is entirely wrong. Um, you know, talented people should be ignored because they were born 12 months later than, than some, you know, their older brother. Um, you know, bastard should be uh, ignored and laughed at, you know, as Gloucester does to Edmund in Act One. Um, you know, however there is this there are positive things about custom and tradition you know there's probably more positive things about custom and tradition and and, and those aspects than there are about just kind of this machiavellian do what you want um and part of that is this association the fact that um you know that when people are associating with each other in the way they should which is you know loving your father, giving him a home, whatever, um, acting with wisdom and prudence on the part of Lear. Lear is not a prudential leader. He, um, gives up his kingdom in, in sort of a, in a way that kind of reflects a senility, uh, almost. Um, but that, that kind of, uh, that kind of concern for the society of man, um, that opens you up to, being a person who can receive love, who can, and, and who is more human in that kind of, you know, in the, in the emotional sense, when we think of that. And I think that's a theme that runs throughout this play. And just like with, as you like it, where there's the, this, the two Dukes who are fighting it out. And that is surrounding a conflict between two brothers who are fighting it out also. Um, so too, we have the, the, Edmund Edgar Gloucester conflict, the conflict between a father and sons, just as we have the larger conflict between a father and daughters. Well, what I find interesting is that in As You Like It, 
very simple scene where the officer's brother is in the gym owner saying how nature is so much better than the court and tradition. And in this case, you have Edmund kind of just giving himself over to nature. It's, it's, in, it's very interesting having read those two plays back to back and the juxtaposition of like, this one says that nature is better than the court, and this one says that tradition and the court is better than nature. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we also have to remember, too, when Orlando is you know, like running in the woods and, and nailing, you're talking about Orlando, right? That, or, or J Jack Reeves. Uh, the, the Duke Dean? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 He kind of establishes, um, a court in nature. And so nature becomes nature. And it, so there's nature as in, um, the like the the setting right the place away from civilization um and the idea with as you like it is that in this place you can kind of in in away from the court life you can sort of restore things to how they're supposed to be so when the duke goes away and when orlando goes away and when Rosalind goes away they're leaving a court which has been disrupted um which hasn't been following, you know, custom because a duke has overthrown his brother. That shouldn't have happened. Um, Sir uh, Oliver is not following the dictates of his father. He's treating Orlando very badly. He He's not listening to the past, literally not listening to his father. And so Orlando has to go away and they go into this natural world where like quote-unquote magical things not literally magical but you know like men can dress up like like women can dress up like men and people just believe it wholeheartedly uh these kind of inversions can happen and the natural world allows the social relations to repair you, you run into the woods for a little while you nail some poems up you act out scenes with your lover with some dude you just met in the woods um and then problems go away life is restored the social world is restored and so you have the, these two ideas of nature as a as a place of restoration but then there's the na natural world here which is a kind of a place of of, of damnation of um you know uh, uh, uh cutthroats and and machiavells we're gonna say something else rachel I, I, yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Is that, um, yeah. Is, is that you, you have to, yeah. Meet in the middle. I, I, I think it's also the process is important too. So, um, with uh, with the comedies the the problem just sort of goes away and so when you meet in the middle uh maybe but everybody goes back to the court and the court is the way it should be with the exception of jay right who 
you know, is, is kind of completely damaged for, for whatever reason. Here, it's kind of like the, the evil in the world um, has to be burnt out with the good. So all the characters we, we love, for the most part, um, die. And there's like a small remnant of positive characters, you know, such as Kent, who, who live on. And so to say that's a return to a median between nature and court or nature and, and let's call it society, um, I, I don't know. It seems like in both cases, you know, I, um, it seems like in both cases, it is possible that it's not that easy to resolve, right? That there is just a tension there that is always going to be there. Uh, possibly yeah that you know that that could be a reading um that's certainly what orlando needs right uh and you know that's that is kind of what lear needs although lear isn't able to apply his quote-unquote lesson right because he, he dies and he loses his daughter you know lear doesn't really recognize the the nature of people he just thinks that they will honor him as uh, because he's their father, right? They'll let him run around with a hundred knights or whatnot and stay wherever he likes because, well, you know, you respect and honor your former king, your father. Um, I'm still technically the king of England, so that's how it is. And Reagan and Goneril are interested in expanding their power. They're not interested in his in, in respecting the past. That's not a part of their nature. And so uh, it might be the case that you should at least be aware of, maybe at least be aware of both. Um, and Lear doesn't, Lear doesn't really get the opportunity to apply that lesson. Sure. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think she's remorseful. Um, I, I might have said that. I, I She commits suicide. Um, I don't know if she ever says she's remorseful. If I said that, I I don't have the evidence for that. So sorry, I didn't I didn't mean that. But what what is your interpretation, Sonia? Yeah, that that's that's great. I think you're probably right that it's a, a sort of a so like you know suicide is selfish act, right? You get to you get to avoid justice. Um, great. No, I I I think you're right. You know. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I understand, you know, the, you're, you're, 
you want to be careful not to bring the the play into the present tense all the time. It doesn't mean the play doesn't speak to us today. I think it does, but they have a different concept of suicide than we do. Um, and and we can, you know, we could deal with that, right? We could respect their concept of suicide while disagreeing with it. Um, but yeah, I, I mm-hmm, yeah, but I do, uh, I do agree with you. I think that that's a really good way of reading it as a means of, as ultimately a selfish act. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah gloucester is is kind of a jerk in that first scene and it's like always played that way if you see the movie he's always kind of like snickering at the bastard right um and so you know it isn't uh you know he isn't a pure innocent now he doesn't deserve what happens to him um but you know I, and i think that his relationship with edmund this kind of um uh, excuse me, his relationship with Edgar, Edgar as Tom, um, is is a way of, or, or hope uh, Tom hopes that they can repair the the damaged relationship and therefore repair the man himself. You know, that's part of like let's you know let's go act out the suicide because that will repair the melancholy, right? He'll he'll kind of exercise the melancholy, which is this 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 uh, early modern period's concept of health is that you need to be balanced so if you're going to commit suicide it's there's too much of a fluid or like the the humors or airs in your body are unbalanced um, and so by kind of working out or performing out your trauma it then returns you to a state of balance um, which is what uh, Edmund as as excuse me their, their freaking names are really annoying Edgar as Tom wants to do We are, oh, we are like seven minutes over, which is fine with me. Um, any other comments? Uh, I guess I just want to say that I find it much more difficult to read these, like, kids, like, understand. Because they use, like, it's like almost every other word you have to check the bottom for what it actually means. Whereas, like, you know, versus with as you like it, it's like, even though they're, like, some of those words don't in there different meaning at the time it's a lot easier to still grasp mm -hmm. okay yeah one thing to do with one maybe solution here is the seeing the performance might be more important than um than just keeping your head in the text so often uh you know the watching the the movie posted and i think there's more than one um version of king lear posted on yukon's library website that you could just watch from your computer um one kind of reading technique might be to have the book open and watch the movie as you're scanning the play or you know look down at the play occasionally but really you know watching the performers though you might not get the dictionary definition of every word you'll understand at least the plot the action as it's transpiring and often you'll kind of get the def you know the the definition of what they're saying 
maybe not each individual word, but probably each phrase if the actor is doing his or her job right. But yeah, it is, I will say, it's a it's a more difficult play. The the tragedies and then the later romances are a little harder. Um, we're not doing the romances, obviously, but they're, they're a bit more difficult. Um, as Shakespeare gets older, uh, his his plays get harder and his scan, his uh, use of text becomes more experimental. All right, any other... Any other comments, questions? All right, good. So take a look at Ron for, for Friday. We're going to, you know, focus really on, on the play itself. Um, uh, the, the, the different film versions and performed versions are to, to see it on its feet. But also you could see Ron is kind of a high, more high concept in the way that the Kenneth Branagh one was. It is a another Japanese version, but this is actually you know made by a Japanese person, um, and it it uh, transposes the Shakespeare text into Japanese, and it has three samurai sons, uh, excuse, yeah, three samurai sons battling over the the shogunate territory. So it's something to consider for your directing project. Um, but if there are no other questions. I will let you go and thank you very much.